listening to the Pro Bono Happy Hour. I'm Rena Gleaser. Welcome back. Today's guest is Jerry Schick from O'Melvenia Myers. Jerry spoke to us from New York City, where she is based. We discussed her career and role at the firm, its pro bono program, pro bono efforts to support Holocaust survivors, her work providing assistance in Haiti after a catastrophic earthquake, and more. We hope you enjoy our conversation. Hi, Jerry. Welcome. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. I'm very excited to do it. And I'm excited to talk to you. Let's jump right in. Could you tell us about your background and how you got to O'Melvenia Myers? And then how did you become pro bono counsel at the firm? So the short answer to the pro bono counsel question is pure dumb luck, but I will I will expand upon that because you're probably looking for a little more than that. The my path was actually that I started at a law firm. I summer I was a summer associate at a law firm in New York. Worked there for one year, then I clerked for a year, and after my clerkship, I worked for a legal services organization, which was called Northern Manhattan Improvement Corporation in New York. And there I represented domestic violence survivors in a variety of different types of matters. And from there, I lateraled to O'Melveny, and that was in 2003. And when I came to O'Melveny, O'Melveny has a very long-standing pro bono program and pro bono history and commitment. But in the New York office, there wasn't really any formal program. And so the partners in New York got together and decided that it would be helpful to have an associate to spend a portion of their time on the pro bono program. And again, through a confluence of just having met the right people, and I think coming from where I come from in legal services and having brought a couple of my own pro bono matters with me, they asked me if I would want to spend a portion of my time, which was my dream come true. Absolutely, yes, that sounds great, was my answer. And it it kind of developed over time. I'd say back then I spent maybe 25% of my time on pro bono, and I was also doing white-collar defense work on the commercial side for the rest of it. And then the pro bono time just grew and grew over time until eventually it became a full-time position. So that's kind of how it evolved over time. That is the best dumb luck story ever. That's fantastic. Isn't that great? Yeah, I know. It it's is. really and, and I and the only thing I left out of it that I'll add is that it was supposed to be a rotating position, which was obviously a silly idea. And I was right away and, and nobody ever actually tried to rotate it, but that was how it was presented in the beginning, um, which I didn't think was, you know, obviously for personal and and very selfish reasons, I wouldn't have wanted it to rotate, but I actually also don't think that would have been good for the program. So it worked out very well. It's like rotation for one, please. <laughs> exactly, exactly. That was what I signed up for. Now, what do you think it is about your background, your personality, how you grew up that sparked your passion for access to justice? Yeah, that's interesting. I think I've always been interested in these issues, but I would say a turning point for me is probably when I was in college and I was a women's studies minor in college. And I think that feminist scholarship generally was very eye-opening for me. And really, I think it gives you a lens through which to view the world. And and that literature, you know, including that kind of scholarship about intersectionality and how race and ethnicity and gender all inform each other and play together. Um, and, and I think it also gave, gives an opportunity for someone like me, who's a white woman, to really recognize your privilege and to really use your empathy for other people. And I think that that, you know, kind of 
developed over time. But that, I think, was a turning point for me and really informed my lens through which I view the world. And then when I later, like I mentioned, work with domestic violence survivors, for example, I think you really have to have that empathetic lens to say, this could be me, or to really be able to put try and put yourself in someone else's position anyway. So I think all of that really informed my way of looking at the world, which really tied into access to justice issues very naturally. That answer resonates with me right now on so many levels, two of which are, I have been thinking a lot about race and privilege and our pro bono work in preparing for our annual conference in March, because we have a really exciting sort of cutting edge a little out there session on this topic that we've been developing with some experts. And I think it is really going to pick up on some of the themes that you just talked about. So that's been on my mind and something that we don't often uh, talk about in our community. So that's exciting. And the second piece that you mentioned that really resonated with me was sort of the feminist theory. And I ended up at my law school because I was interested in studying feminist legal theory. So it sort of brought back my whole, (laughs) some of the decisions I had made and and my uh, education paths and career paths. And so I'm wondering, sort of thinking about school and choices like that, I bet you get asked a lot, I know I do, about people who think that or know that you have one of the greatest jobs in the legal community and want to (laughs) know, how do I become a pro bono counsel at a law firm? What advice do you have? And and I suspect you can't just tell them to follow your path and that dumb luck will work. (laughs) Right, right. (laughs) That's very funny. It's very interesting. And by the way, just um, what you just said before I answer your question, I'm very excited to hear about the PBI session. And I've already signed up for my early registration, and so I will definitely be going to that session, and I think that sounds really fascinating, because that question really does make you kind of think and go back and and revisit, you know, how you develop into what your views are and where you are in, in your world. And with regard to that question, which, of course, I do get all the time, and it is a difficult, it's difficult because this is not the kind of path that you can say to somebody who might be interested just in public interest law, you can give advice on how you can go down that path and how you can go into that area. Or if they want to become a law firm lawyer, obviously even easier. There are, because there are just so many more, not that those paths aren't competitive, but there are so many more positions in them than this kind of position of being a pro bono counsel at a firm. The good news for people is that when I was coming into this position, I didn't even know it existed. Most firms didn't have it, and at most they would have one person doing it, especially if it was a full-time role. Whereas now, there are definitely more of them. Most law firms have this position, and many have more than one person in it. So there's certainly more opportunity now to get into a position like this than there was even five years ago, I would say, or maybe less than that. I mean, I think I see more postings for this position and, and more people maybe kind of moving out of it and then needing to be replaced or, like I said, just firms hiring more than one person. And then, you know, you look at um, the L.A. Piper and that's a whole industry of it. <laughs> so so I, I and as far as advice on how to get into it, it is hard because I don't it depends on what the person's doing at the time. I don't think that there is one path to it. I think certainly if you are at one of the few firms that don't have it yet or maybe have one person and could use another and then, and that's the position you're in, then making a pitch to your own firm, I think, is 
probably the most effective because you're a known quantity to them. I think part of what was easy about growing up in this position and being with O'Melveny the whole time is that they already knew me. And as I got to know the firm and people got to know me and my work, it was easier for them to have confidence in me in the position. Whereas when you're coming in somewhere new, you don't have that. Having said that, though, there are a lot of firms now who post this position who really are looking externally and aren't necessarily looking for an internal person to fill the position. So depending on what you're doing, if you're at a law firm, I would say do a lot of pro bono. Get, you know, get really familiar with that, with those areas, uh, show that you have that commitment, show that you have some knowledge in some areas of poverty law, which would be really helpful if you do want to apply for one of those positions. Um, and if you're in public interest, obviously, you're also in a good position. Maybe you, if you're at an organization who works with firms, maybe you actually try to work with firms more, try and get to know that culture more so that you are in a better position to sell yourself if a position like that opens up. I don't know if that's a good answer to the question. That's that's the answer that I give people, and I, I feel like that's the best you can do in, a, in an area where there just aren't a lot of open positions for this, this type of work. I think that's a great answer, and it's a hard question to answer because there's no cookie-cutter, sort of one-size-fits-all path of do X, Y, Z, you'll be very well-situated. It's, it's so it's, it's a long coffee to have with people, not a 10-minute, <laughs> you know. Yeah, that's exactly right. <laughs> Here, do this. And we're going to come back to your point of firms having more than one person in this position in a minute. But before we do that, for people who aren't super familiar with OMA, Melvinie, could you tell us a little bit more about the firm in general and sort of a 30,000-foot view of the pro bono program? Sure. As I alluded to before, even though when I came in, there wasn't a lot of form, a lot of a formal program, I would say, particularly in the New York office, but firm-wide, the firm has a very long history of pro bono, and it very much, pro bono and community service are very much wired into the DNA of the firm, I would say, which makes a big difference in the whole culture and just how it's evolved over time. So this goes back, and David Lash, who's my colleague, who who we'll talk about, who's great, always tells these great, you know, he has all the historical stories. I always see David tell about the history of O'Melveny, and he always has these great stories about how in the 1930s, O'Melveny was really at the forefront of this burgeoning pro bono movement in L.A. and Los Angeles, which were where the firm started. And one of the founders of the firm, John O'Melveny, was a founding board chair of the Legal Aid Foundation of Los Angeles. And I think we've had a firm partner who sat on that organization's board ever since then. There's also some history in the 1960s. I think two of our lawyers were among the 40 who were invited by John F. Kennedy then, President John F. Kennedy then, to address legal needs of those in the South who were fighting for civil rights and the civil rights of African Americans. And I think that that resulted in the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights. And we always have, I think, I don't know if we've always had a board member on on, on that organization, but I think that's probably the case. Um, the firm was also one of the first to charter a formal pro bono committee. So all of this is just to say that there's a really long history and tradition of pro bono here that is part of the fabric of the firm. And now I would say the program has really evolved to just be more modern, bigger, more inclusive, more opportunities for attorneys to get involved, and really covers almost every area of poverty law. And I don't think that we really shy away from any areas, or very few anyway, if we do, for reasons of conflicts or other reasons. But this firm certainly doesn't shy away from controversial cases. There's a lot of impact litigation, but also a lot of individual representation, a lot of cases for nonprofits and transactional work. And I think so I think it's a very broad-based program that 
has a really long history at the firm. So I think people really feel like it's part of who the firm is. So you mentioned your colleague, David Lash. Could you talk a little bit about the firm's pro bono governance structure, how the roles and responsibilities are divvied up among you and your colleagues running the pro bono program? Sure. So David Lash is who I mentioned. There are two full-time pro bono positions at the firm, and that's one of them is my position, which is pro bono counsel here in the New York office. And then David Lash has the other position. He's in the LA office, and his He's a managing counsel of pro bono and public interest services and also happens to be a really good friend and a great person to work with. That's really lucky too. talk about the luck in your in your career, in your life. That's very lucky to have people you work with who you really, really like. And so that uh, when we I, and I don't know how long I've been in the position before we like discovered each other, because my position was kind of created by New York partners in the New York office in its own little silo, I think, at that time. And so we kind of discovered each other pretty early on and work work a lot together. Um, I would say I do a lot more locally in New York and now more in D.C. as an East Coast person. And David does a lot more locally in our California offices, of which there are many. And then we both work together on firm-wide everything and general policy things and other issues that just come up for the pro bono program as a whole. And we both also work together with respect to our offices outside of the U.S. We're the two, like I said, the two full-time people. Then we always have a pro bono partner for the firm, which is a rotating position. And it's not a full-time position. So our pro bono partner always has a full-time commercial practice. Right now, that person is Brian Berliner, who is an IP partner in California, who also spends a fair amount of time in New York. And then as part of the overall structure, there is a pro bono partner who's designated in each office. Again, these are partners with full-time commercial practices, but they also hold this role as pro bono partner in their respective offices. And all of those people, um, Brian, David, myself, those pro bono partners, and some others who are uh, like our general counsel and, and some other representatives make up our community legal services committee. It's basically our firm-wide pro bono committee. And that committee sets pro bono policy for the firm. And that committee also, its daily task, and I would say the thing that it spends most of its time on, is reviewing and approving pro bono matters, which happens electronically on a daily basis. Thank you for that. So you talked a little bit about your responsibilities and how roles are divvied up, but let's drill down into how you spend your time. What what are your days like? What are my days like, right? (laughs) I feel like my days are crazy, like most people's are. Uh, in this role. When I think about how I spend my time, I actually still do some version of timesheets. So I could, I could probably have a real answer to this question. I feel like I spend a lot of time in relationships, relationships with legal service organizations, with my own attorneys, supervising matters, starting new projects, uh, exploring new opportunities, I'm I'm involved in a lot of committees internally and externally. So, and they're all most of them are pro bono related. Some internal are more related to our women's committee, for example, in the office I've been on for a really long time, and very active on it and leading it. Client collaborations that we're doing more of more more pro bono work with our commercial clients, risk management issues. And I spend an inordinate amount of time on email. I think like everybody does, <laughs> and I am, as David Lash will attest to, a serial archiver. So I archive almost every single email that I write and I copy myself on almost every email that I send. 
And that is actually a big part of my job is I can't even tell you how many times I go back to old emails to say, actually, I had asked you to do this. Whatever happened with this? Or this actually had been approved <laughs> back here. Or this is what happened with this. Because we also deal with so many different issues in so many different cases. I really need to revisit those emails to re-familiarize myself with what's happened on any one thing. I mean, this is a multitasking job. Sure. And they come in handy, right? Because you dealt with something in X and now it's Y. And you're like, wait, I've written about this. I've We've thought about this already. Let's kind of... Oh, yeah, Rena, I have all of it. I <laughs> yep. have every single email. I mean, it is crazy. And and David always laughs, but he's like, do you have that email? Where we, I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Let me just go into my archives. I have like hundreds of subfolders. It's completely ridiculous. Even as we speak right now, I'm secretly tensing about all the emails <laughs> that are coming in that I'm not dealing with right now <laughs> that are not, are not dealt with or archived okay. in some way. Well, we'll talk <laughs> this, quickly. This, this is my life now. We'll talk quickly so you can get back to it. I'm that way too. I'm not a hoarder of stuff, but I am a hoarder of emails. I, I really, right. <laughs> I, I can totally relate to that. So if you had endless time, other than spending more time organizing and archiving your emails, what, <laughs> what, what would you do? What do you wish you could spend time doing? Like the stuff on your to-do list that just never creeps up to the top because you have too many other things that you're doing. That's a really good question. I feel like it's those bigger projects, those things that you want to delve into, and they don't make it to your daily to-do list, but it might be exploring some bigger project or some new thing. That, like we were doing these calls in relation to ABCO, and somebody had this really good idea. We're actually trying to think of those things that we never really get a chance to do and check in with each other and be a sounding board and have some kind of accountability. So you have to get on the next call and say how you move forward on one thing or another. And one idea actually, which came from somebody else on, on our calls, which I thought was a great idea. And also something that's always on my list was just sitting down with partners at the farm, just, just taking the time to reach out to them individually, sitting down, having a coffee, talking about what they want to do or what pro bono interests them. And she actually had, I, I want to, before our next call, I want to have reached out to eight partners. Maybe you, maybe some of them don't respond. Maybe you don't get all of them. But to actually have a list of people who you would just reach out to and talk to and who has the time for that, right? I mean, that's the thing that kind of slips unless it's really something that you commit yourself to do. You just don't have time. And so it's things like that that are even it sounds like a small thing, but I think that would make a huge difference. But it's really hard to find the time to do it. So I think those are the types of things that I think about or bigger projects that I always want to explore, but get back burnered, back burnered, because there's all of the fires that you're putting out every day and the immediate things that you're dealing with. And like I said, the email box that was just completely full, that you just had to, to respond to the issues that are coming up rather than having the time to really explore something new and, and really take the time to do that. It's hard. It's really hard to find the time for those things. Those are great tips. And I think being intentional about things is maybe a way to get them, <laughs> you know, a little further right. up on your to-do list. And I think everything doesn't have to be humongous. So I think that's a great idea about the meeting with some partners is that's very doable, right? It's not overwhelming. It doesn't require a million outside stakeholders. It's just kind of figuring out how to get the momentum to, to make it happen, but it seems accessible rather than completely overwhelming. Um, but those are great ideas and great tips. So Jerry, what do you enjoy most about your job? So I think, I think what I enjoy most, I, I did this for one of these women's conferences we had at the firm. They had these, this personality test 
which I never done one of these before, and I can't remember which one it was, but apparently it's a pretty famous one that lots of people have done. And I came out really strong on the building relationship side. Like, I love relationships. I love building relationships. I, I love my own relationships. I also like putting other people together so that they can have a relationship. I mean, any kind of relationship. And I, I think I am very much a relationship person. I really enjoy connecting with people, and I enjoy connecting other people with one another. And so this job is really about relationships, I think. At least that's how I do it. I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong and people will be like, that's actually not what this job is about at all. But I think connecting, I love connecting with clients, with with our actual pro bono clients. I love connecting with the attorneys at the firm and finding them those cases. I like connecting with all of the people at the legal service organizations who we work with, who all of what you do and all of what everybody does out there that enables us to do what we do. I think that that's one of my favorite things, and that's at the center of this job. I think if you're not good at relationships, this probably is not going to be a job that you really like or maybe are even really successful at. I think that that's really part of what you have to like to do and have to want to do to be in a job like this. So you're such a matchmaker. That's exciting. I'm a matchmaker. I'm like yeah, a yenta. I know. That's that's what that's, I, think so. I, I do love it. And I, and I love, obviously, the bigger, and then you know that you're doing it all, and there's some greater good out there coming from it, so that there are relationships that you're building that are meaningful and that ultimately are helping the most vulnerable people, the most disenfranchised, the ones needing the most help in society, those are the ones who are benefiting from all of that. So it's, I, I shouldn't just say it's just about like me chatting with people and having relationships and have fun for me. It's knowing that all of that is resulting in this bigger, greater good that is really, you know, helping the world in some way. Yeah, it's social purpose matchmaking. So sometimes we add, in, we add in music. So I think maybe we'll need a little fiddler here, a little matchmaker <laughs> interlude sometimes. So <laughs> what, I love it. So we talked about favorite parts and upsides. What are some of your greatest personal challenges with the job other than keeping up with the email archiving? <laughs> right, right, which is obviously now I've, I've confessed that that's my greatest challenge. Yeah. So... I mean, it's hard, it's hard to think about that question about challenges right now without putting yourself in a historical moment in time. I might have answered this question very differently six months ago. Now, I know this is a podcast, so now, January 25th, 2017, I think there is a heightened need that's at least anticipated. There is more fear in, in low-income communities and the communities that we serve, there are people who are feeling really vulnerable right now. And I think it's very much a galvanizing moment. Lawyers have a really critical role to play right now. Pro bono has a really critical role right now. And then while we're, I think, working to meet these new needs, making sure that we're also helping people with the same old ongoing needs that they will continue to have is also something that's really important so that the priorities they balance. I think it's going to be a real balancing act. And I've been, that feels like a huge challenge right now. The needs felt overwhelming before. I feel like that is, is, and is going to be amplified. The issues that I think we have moved past, civil rights issues and other issues, I think are going to resurface now and, and already are in a lot of ways. So the, that, that's what feels like the challenges that lie ahead for all of us right now that are even greater. I mean, there were challenges before, like I said, so now it just feels very much amplified. On the positive side, I think there's more interest from people. I think there's more urgency to this work. 
And we might have to be a little smarter about how we prioritize our work, how we collaborate. So it, it's all filled with challenges, but there definitely are positive aspects of, I, I think more people are wanting to get involved in pro bono, are, are even those who are already involved, I think want to amp it up, which is great. We might capture new people who maybe weren't as active before. Those are the positive things in, in the face of the challenges. Those are great observations. So we'll have to come back in six months or a year and see right. see how it's played out. Just do a little follow-up check-in would be great. So you mentioned earlier that pro bono is wired into the DNA of the firm. That said, what have you found works best to incentivize and encourage your lawyers to do pro bono work? I wish I had something really new here to give you some golden nugget of deliciousness that nobody's ever told you. And I don't know that I do. I think there are a lot of tried and true ways that that work. The good news is I think they're effective, but I don't know how, how new and exciting it is. I think that many people think, and, and the key is it's the kind of gateway drug analogy or whatever, is give them a taste of pro bono and people will want to do it more. So part of it is just getting people in the door. I think having support from the top at the firm is really important. People need to feel comfortable doing it and feel like it's well supported. And you want to make it really easy for them. And that's part of what my job was, especially when I came into it in New York, was just formalizing things because the commitment was already there from the firm, but it wasn't necessarily easy for people. The relationships all weren't there, in particular in New York. You're making those relationships, putting out those opportunities, making it easy for people to go through the administrative process to open a matter. Sounds really dull and boring, but it's actually important because it makes it not something that's daunting for somebody. It makes it easier for them to do. I'll also say that for younger generations, it's much less of an issue. The new attorneys come in. They all want to do it. I can't think of any times really where there are there are new people coming in who just don't want to make pro bono a part of what they do. And so, you know, part of this this issue of how do we get more people, I think it's going to disappear over time, frankly, because I think that the new attorneys coming in, the younger attorneys are just just part of what they're doing more in law school now, at least here, I don't know, maybe it's not completely universal and that's not fair to say, but I think generally it's much more part of their culture than it was in the past. And then the last thing I would say is that I would also be interested in exploring, there is more research kind of going on in this area now, and the Association of Pro Bono Council has started working with some researchers from some top universities, and they're actually testing out different things to try and see what does incentivize lawyers to do pro bono. So that's really interesting. And we're, we're participating in some studies about that. And some of it is using kind of, I don't know if peer pressure is the word, they probably have a nicer researchy word for it. But that kind of thing where you feel like maybe you're an outlier, if you don't do it, you see all your colleagues are doing it. How do you show people that in a way that encourages them and really makes them actually act? And I think there's a lot of different things going on in that area now that they're researching that will be really interesting for us. And hopefully there will be new things to say about it beyond, you know, the kind of tried and true things that I've already talked about. Oh, that's awesome. We've we've written a little bit about the peer pressure side of it. I think scientifically they often call it social proof. And thank you. Yeah, for people better word. For people who are interested, they could go to our blog and 
search for this. There's an amazing video. It's an old candid camera sketch for people who are old enough to remember this. And you can search for candid camera elevator. And it's amazing. It's a little stunt where the cast of the candid camera show are in the elevator and one unsuspecting person gets on the elevator and the actors just do all these crazy things, right? Like they turn the wrong way, they take their hats on and off, like all this goofy stuff that people don't do normally. And you see that the unsuspecting Mark just conforms because even nonconformists were like lemmings. Yeah, <laughs> You don't want to stand That's out so even in the elevator. Oh my God. It is gut busting hysterical. This expert that we work with, Dr. Larry Richard, showed the video last year at the conference when he did a whole kind of thing on why lawyers volunteer behavioral psychology as, as applied to this. And it's please look it up or contact us. Maybe we'll tweet a link when we uh, promote our pod, Jerry. It's, it is so funny. And you never... I have to look at it. You will never forget it. And it will articulate and demonstrate exactly this idea of even non-conforming, you know, independent lawyers that just kind of want to do our own thing. We're just not immune to this. <laughs> like, it's, yeah, exactly. It's, it's human nature. It's human and, nature. And so yeah. that's what's interesting about that kind of social science yeah. research. It's yeah. really tapping into human nature. Yeah. You know, lawyers are people yeah. and they are moved and, and incentivized by the same things yeah. as as just regular human beings, yeah. even though sometimes yeah. we don't seem like we're human beings. Yeah. Yeah. And so it really is interesting to see those things. Yeah. And I think it also sort of is scientific confirmation for things that you've known all along, right? As you were saying, leadership support is important. Exactly. If people don't see others, particularly leaders, being supportive of pro bono, they're not going to do it. You know, it's all part right. of this role modeling and peer pressure and making it sort of part of our professional routine, you know, at, at the firm. So that's uh, a lot of cool tips and fantastic. And I, I don't, they may be tried and true, but they are also new uh, <laughs> to many listeners. And we can always try different things and, and learn new things. So one new thing relative to the sort of pro bono marketplace is the firm's articulated policy that new lawyers in all U.S. offices are required to handle at least one pro bono matter in their first year at the firm. So what is this all about and how does it play out in practice? So this was an initiative that came out as part of our, in 2006, we had, I think we called it a pro bono initiative. And it was really something that we were doing to revitalize the pro bono program around the firm. And it, we did a lot with ensuring that our internal resources were integrated with the community needs, getting more opportunities out there. Just, it, was a, it was a lot of things that we did during that time, but one of the things that came out of that initiative was this first-year requirement. And it applies to both first-year attorneys coming from law school, but also anybody lateraling into the firm. Anybody who's new to O'Melveny is subject to this, this requirement, and the requirement is to work on pro bono within your first year at the firm. And the idea behind it and the point of it, which I'll state the obvious, but I think it's worth saying, is this is, our, this is your introduction to O'Melveny's firm culture. You're starting your career at O'Melveny now, whether you were somewhere else before or whether you're coming straight from law school. And the way it is, you should always have a pro bono case on your docket. That's how we roll here. That's how you practice law. I mean, this is, it's really meant to show people that this isn't just talk. We're not saying we want you to do it. We actually do are going to get behind you and make you do it. And also goes into what we were talking about before with the taste. You know, give them a taste, 
They're going to like it so much that they're going to want to make it something that they do over and over again. And so this is the forced taste, (laughs) but hopefully it's the thing that gets people hooked ultimately. And so it's, it's not really this onerous requirement. And whenever I talk about it in orientations, I talk about it in the spirit of how I'm speaking about it now, which is this is just a way to introduce you to our culture and something that we want you to at least try. And whatever people do after that, you know, you, there's not, it's kind of not kind of mandatory going forward. But like I said, for these young associates coming in, is it needed? I'm not even sure. But I think it's a nice message that the firm gives to all of those new people coming in that, that this, is, this is part of who this, the firm is. How has it played out in practice? Do you, you know, has it been positive? Does it add sort of burdens to you to, you know, make this happen? Um, all good? Some mix? What, what's kind of looking back since it's been enacted? What's your take on it? I would say all good. It's an easy one. Because of the population that you're dealing with, because it's just your new people, it's easy to monitor it. It's easy to, we get reports just to see, to make sure that our, our new attorneys are all, have done it or are doing, you know, and there's not a particular hours requirement associated with it. So while most people will end up doing more than X amount of hours, just because once you take something on, technically you could fulfill this requirement by doing a clinic, mm-hmm. by doing an hour of research. You know, technically you would be fine. I mean, and like I said, because a lot of these new people coming in are really, I would say almost or possibly all of them are anxious to do pro bono anyway, it might happen anyway. I mean, mm-hmm. it would be interesting to see if we took it away, <laughs> whether the numbers would actually change at all, maybe very slightly, but I'm not even sure they would. But I do think that it gives them it makes them comfortable so they don't have to feel like, well, maybe I'll wait for a long time before I take on pro bono to prove myself in these other ways or to make sure that I show that I'm here to do this other commercial work and, you know, or I don't want to get too busy. I'm worried. I mean, this is kind of a, not only is a firm telling you it's okay to do this, you have to do it. And so I, I think it gives people permission in this way that's very positive, that makes them feel like the firm is behind them in doing it. So it hasn't been onerous at all. And like I said, it's, I can't think of a time where, especially recently, where we had to get after people who hadn't done it by a certain time of the year. So, I mean, in that sense, it's been, it's been if people, if firms are contemplating requirement, that kind of thing, and I know that's an ongoing debate now, I think if you, at least to start off, if you want to focus on this population, I think it's, it's a really easy way to do it. That is a great takeaway. So I, I appreciate kind of peeling away the the layers of the onion a little into how this actually works. And I think that's a great that's a great takeaway and a great message. I wanted to switch gears a little bit. We recently talked to Ellen Joseph about this, and you were super involved too. So I wanted to talk to you about your efforts to obtain reparations from Germany for eligible Holocaust survivors. You've been a real leader in Beitzetik's Holocaust Survivor Justice Network, and I thought you could share a little bit about your experience. Yeah, that's also one of my favorite topics. I'll <laughs> just talk to you all day, Rena. All right. <laughs> Keep asking about my to talk about. <laughs> that, that it was and is a really transformative experience for me. I, and I won't go into the details of how this happened, but I almost accidentally became the, the New York citywide coordinator for this, that's at Legal Services um, Holocaust Survivors Justice Network. 
And this started back in 2007. It's a program at that time, especially, it was just we were focusing on a particular reparations program from Germany for Holocaust survivors who had performed work in ghettos. The, without, again, going into a lot of detail, because it, it in and of itself is, is, was quite a saga. But in New York, there are, at that time in particular, there were over 30,000 survivors in the New York City area. There was no infrastructure in place. There was no network. It's not like how law firms usually do pro bono, where we really rely on the legal service organization to identify the clients, to get in touch with them, to do the screening to set everything up so you just have to walk in and and take the case. This was not that. This really was having to create an infrastructure for this. We actually had to do outreach to 30,000 survivors. Only a portion of them would actually be eligible for this program. So we had to reach out to all of them in some fashion and create a screening program where we could use all these lawyers to screen the cases and then figure out who was actually eligible and then set set up clinics all around the city and do it in places where the survivors were. So it was a huge undertaking, a fantastic experience for me in every way, both in managing something like this and putting it together. I learned so much about how you would put a big project like this together. There were over 30 law firms who were involved in it. We maybe had seven or eight law firms on our steering committee and some other organizations. That SEDEC was obviously amazing and guiding us through it all. And they were the ones who did all of the training and made sure that all the mentorship was in place and, and the legal guidance. But as far as the logistics on the ground, that was stuff we all had to figure out for ourselves. So it was a wonderful experience. And, and then, of course, the work itself. And it was an incredibly popular project, helping Holocaust survivors. Turns out to be really, really popular, as it should be. Talk about relationships and making connections. Connecting people with Holocaust survivors, that might be towards the top of my personality test, relationship, happiness, when you can actually put people together and put somebody with a Holocaust survivor who can hear their story, who can now, maybe they would never would have come into contact with a Holocaust survivor. Even on a personal level, aside from the great legal work they were doing for these people, they can say to their children, I met a Holocaust survivor. I, this was their story. You know, having these stories be passed down to another generation through this project, I think that's to me, that was a part of the project anyway. Obviously, the main goal was to help the survivors get the reparations. But there were other, I guess, benefits from it that I might not have even thought about at the time. But once I actually started doing the project, I started thinking, this is, this is a population that is aging. And many are passing away. And so having these stories be told by new generations of people is really important. And then, of course, I, because of the work, I ended up taking on a lot of these cases and made really close relationships with a lot of survivors. We're now, like, some of my closest friends. It's crazy, but I, lo- I love, love these people. They're such incredible human beings. They've been through things that are absolutely unimaginable and unthinkable, and I really can't even think about them for more than a few minutes at a time because it's overwhelming. But yet they are these kind, wonderful people who have so much faith in humanity, I learn all these great lessons from, I love them. So I, I just, I've, there were so many, and I know I'm like a, on a rambling phase now, so I'm going to stop, <laughs> but there were so many great things about this project, and I'm so, so grateful that I that this fell upon me in this way, and I was able to take advantage of that opportunity, because it ended up, it was an unbelievable commitment, and, a, and commitment of time, especially in the beginning, but it has paid back in returns that are really immeasurable. 
I think living lessons of resilience are especially apt now, <laughs> you know, in this day right. and age, right? That's, that's right. That's very heartening given the challenges that you spoke of earlier. And this project was just so incredibly life-changing for so many people on so many different levels that it, it really is sort of a a best of pro bono, you know, for, for the, the people getting help, the people giving help. Um, and it's really um, has a life that will live on, you know, past the immediate time of the work. Um, so it's, it's amazing. And I too love talking about it. Um, you mentioned that project had an issue of infrastructure or lack thereof. And that is a similar theme to, to the next experience that I wanted to talk about, which was your time doing pro bono work in Haiti after the earthquake. Also a very life-changing experience for me. And this I, I do not claim credit for. This is Jane Fleming at Reed Smith. This is her baby. She is amazing. I, I could talk about her a lot. But the way that I even, the way this even turned into a project and the way that I found out about it was I was at PBI big PBI plug here. I was at a PBI conference. Jane, it was right after the earthquake in Haiti in 2010. And Jane did a presentation about, she's such an amazing woman. The earthquake happens. She just gets on a plane and just goes there. She doesn't even know. She's just a human rights activist. She doesn't even know what she's going to do. She just knows that there has been this disaster and people need help. And she just gets on a plane and goes. And what she talked about when she did her presentation was how she had discovered that there were, they made these connections with grassroots women's organizations, and there were all these women who had been victims of sexual violence, particularly after the earthquake. They were living in these tent camps. They're incredibly vulnerable. And there was just this rampant sexual violence happening in these tent camps. And so she had this, and again, uh, you know, she, she does a lot of immigration law and is very, very knowledgeable and is an expert and had this brainchild for how there might be a form of relief for these women called humanitarian parole, which hasn't really been used in this context, but she thought it could be applicable. So when she was describing what she'd done and going down there, I just became extremely interested in it and started speaking to her about it. And she was interested. I said, you know, can we get some lawyers down there? What can we do? And so I just helped her to organize a delegation of New York lawyers. And it was really pro bono counsel, mostly, with some exceptions. There were five or six of us who went down. Um, my closest friend is a psychologist, and it needed a psychologist as part of the team. And so she came down with one of her colleagues, and we spent 10 days in Haiti a few months after the earthquake, and and this project really kind of took form. Um, and again, I don't want to ramble on because there's so much to say about it. I've I've never been that close to a natural disaster like that, especially in a in a place where there was no infrastructure to deal with it. And it was even it was like a few months after the earthquake that we were there, but everything looked like it had happened the day before. I've never seen that kind of destruction. I've never, I've never seen people in that, with that level of, you know, desperation and the living conditions that they were in. I mean, it was really transformative and really, you know, one of the most traumatic things that I've personally seen and, and really been able to kind of be there and touch and feel and talk to these women about all that they had been through. It was very, very intense. 
Um, and out of that, became, it came this humanitarian project where all the firms who had gone each took cases with them. And it, it had a lot of challenges and still does. I have a case right now that I'm still trying. And this is how many years later, you know, I'm still trying to get uh, humanitarian parole for this client. It's not easy, but but to Jane's credit, she went down there every six weeks. She was going down there for years, every six weeks for years. She was going down there and meeting with with all these women and continuing to take cases and starting a foundation. It's really, really inspiring. And so even just being a part of the project was was a really great experience. And um, and like I said, we continue to have people who were trying to help. I mean, there are challenges, but Jane was right. She got. She was able to get, and, and several firms involved, humanitarian parole for several people on on her idea of how it could be applied to this population of people. So it's really, really great project. That's amazing. Thank you so much for sharing. Um, Jane's now been camped out in Greece working on I know. Right, the refugee crisis. It was Jordan before. Now she's yep. in Greece, right? Yep. yep. She's incredible. Um, talk about citizen of the world. She's really yeah. <laughs> represents global pro bono. I mean, it's it's amazing. So, Jerry, you've been in your pro bono management role since around 2003, you know, f- some percent of your time. Looking back over the course of this time, what lessons have you learned? What, you know, what do you know now about this role that you wish you knew then? I don't even know. I don't have a good answer to this question. I don't think. What do I wish I knew now? I think. Save your emails, think, one of them. But to yeah. me, I mean, I don't know. It was, it was a surprise that this job even existed at all. I mean, then it maybe would have been nice to know <laughs> that there is a position at firms that, it, that is even like this. That, you know, there are people who are, are full-time dedicated to pro bono and to helping firms do this work. I mean, that, and even knowing that there are other people out there who are doing it from other firms, I mean, all of that, I think, would have really been interesting to me to know back then. You know, and there are, I mean, as far as what you learn, it's so hard to say because this job and like every job that anybody has, I guess, there's so much tacit knowledge. There's so many things that you learn that you just take for granted and you don't really think about. So it can be difficult. Like even when someone asks, like, what do you do with your day or what? Like that question, it's like, oh, God, what do I do? And there's just a million things. And there are so many things that you learn as you go that you just know how to deal with risk management issues, things about the engagement letter, red flags that maybe wouldn't have looked like red flags when you first started the job. Um, thank goodness I don't have any like really bad lesson learned story of like, I wish I had known then that that was malpractice because <laughs> yeah. I would have done something different. <laughs> Um, but but that it's that kind of job that risk management is actually a really big part of what we do, and so having you know that kind of knowledge and knowing what red or yellow flags to look for and being able to get the right people involved early on with those situations is a really really important part of this job. I mean I think it's you know one of the reasons that I think being a lawyer in the position really makes a difference. I think it's very helpful to have that background. Um, and I've definitely, you know, learned a lot of things that, and especially like those big projects like the Holocaust Project, that was a huge learning experience for me. And even knowing that I, I would be able to um, help to manage a big project like that is really great. But all the things that I learned about how you do that and, you know, I'm sure I would have done things differently at going back on it, knowing what I know now. I mean, I know one of the things... Um, and this just occurred to me as we're talking about the people, kind of relationships and 
being a people pleaser. I mean, I'm a big people pleaser. That's kind of part of my whole personality, whatever thing that was profile, I guess. And, and, and I remember doing that project and trying to make everybody happy, even when they weren't asking for it. So one example was there were all of these clinics that we had, these screening clinics that were happening in all different places in the city because we wanted to be close to the communities where people were. And we had different firms who were hosting these screening clinics. And in the beginning, I just had this instinct of, well, geez, some of these places are much more accessible than others, and we're going to have to rotate it so that every firm can, hosting firm can get a chance to do a different location because it's really not fair to X firm to stick them in this location that might be, you know, not as accessible to the subway or really far out. So I, I need to, you know, make everybody happy. And I remember someone from Bethetic then saying kind of, hold on, you know, this is a great project for people. You're never going to make everybody happy. And frankly, if somebody can't, doesn't want to do a certain location, that's okay. There's going to be another firm who will cover it. So don't worry. Don't concern yourself and kind of change the structure of things to make things more complicated just because you think it will make people happier. And that was such great advice. And that's what we did. I mean, we just had certain firms hosted certain locations. Nobody complained, by the way. And it was such a better structure than just trying to reorganize everything just because I thought people would be happier that way. So anyway, that was a kind of a lesson. Like, I feel like there are all these lessons learned in this kind of job and things that surprise you along the way. And you really have to kind of take that with you into your next experience with it. I think that's an amazing lesson learned, particularly a personality-driven one, because if you're sort of someone who wants to please and say yes and make everyone happy all the time, this could be really hard, right? You see requests for assistance all the time, and you want to take right. every case, and you want to help everyone. And then you go home at night, and you think, well, I'll do it. I'll, you know, I'll, no, you can't take every case. <laughs> you know, no, you just, you just can't. And if you don't have that sort of turn on, turn off, separation, um, that would be really hard. <laughs> if you, That's right. No, you're right. Yeah. You're right. And it's true. Like, you cannot make everybody happy. You can't. Um, in whatever context, I mean, or sometimes you can, but you can't always, you know what I mean? And, yeah. you, and that can't be the only, that can't be the driving force always, because chances are you're going to miss out on some bigger picture thing like I was going to do with this project. And I was actually going to make it more complicated and worse for everybody thinking that I was making everybody else happy. So, you know, looking at that and kind of examining it, you're right. I mean, it, it really is something that you, you have to kind of step back from and, and examine and figure out whether you're, what reason you're doing something for and whether it actually makes sense and whether at the end of the day it's going to be better that way, you know, because it might seem like it's making people happier, but if everybody actually had to do that rotation, it might have made everybody really miserable because they're at a new location. They don't have everything set up there. They got to bring their stuff in. They got to meet the new people. You know, it might have actually, in the end of the day, made everybody much more miserable, and it probably would have, but that, you know, my thinking was kind of set up the wrong way for it. Yeah, we have to really manage those expectations, those instincts, those thinking. Thinkings are, we'd be on the express train to burnout. <laughs> right, you're right. Exactly, you're right. So that was a really great kind of look back to, to your experience and some of the highlights and meaningful projects that you've worked on. I wanted to spend a minute looking forward, and you talked a little bit about this in relation to the challenges and the changed political landscape and what we're all going to be a, a encountering, but a little more specifically, are there sort of new projects in the works or new things on the horizon for the pro bono program that you could tell us about or one or two short or long-term goals that you have th that's coming up 
I think you're right. I mean, I think I would probably look at that in this in this context of the political context and just the general context of where we are right now as far as what's on the horizon. I do think that these bigger collaborations are going to become more important and working together with other firms, with legal service organizations, all kind of coming together in different ways, I think will be part of the wave of the future and, and the good things that will come out of a feeling of everybody wants to galvanize and, and do, you know, get their hands dirty and do the work together. One example of this is uh, there is a um, Firearms Accountability Council Task Force, and this, which I'm sure you're familiar with, but it's made up of, you know, law firms that have teamed up with public interest organizations, and they're all committed to curbing gun violence. So it's the Law Center to Prevent Gun Violence, the Brady Center, the Brennan Center. They've all gotten together with a number of different firms. And and we're one of those firms, and there's other great firms, um, Covington and Denton's and, and Paul Weiss and um, Arnold and Porter. I guess it's Arnold and Porter, K. Scholler now, yep. um, Munger Tolls, Hogan. I mean, these are all firms who have kind of gotten together to really try and get creative about legal strategies that will be meaningful in the context of gun violence. So, you know, regulatory tra- change and, um, and stopping irresponsible practices of gun dealers and the manufacturers and maybe challenging different state laws and other things that kind of increase the risk of gun violence. Everybody's kind of getting behind a particular issue and getting together and getting their great legal minds together to coordinate. So that, I think, is a great project that I'm very happy that we're a part of. And I think that there will be more of those and there should be more of those where you really get different firms together and different people together and different lawyers together and organizations together to really, you know, collaborate in ways that will result in better change so that not everybody is kind of stepping on their toes or everybody's duplicating efforts. I mean, you can really not only come up probably with better creative strategies, but then coordinate those strategies. So, okay, you're going to handle this here and we're going to handle that there. I think that that is much better than, than everybody just kind of jumping in and trying to figure it out. So that kind of collaboration, I think, is really part of the wave of the future. That, um, and I, I think, you know, ABCO came out with some projects like this to these impact projects. I think that's kind of the future of, of working together to create better change. It's super exciting. I think particularly the the gun violence project is very novel and innovative, and that'll be another thing we'll follow up, right, and see see uh, what's happened, see how it goes. And I think for me, it, historically, it's interesting because we get asked this a lot by the media and other people, you know, what about politically polarizing projects or, you know, sort of right. issues that people could really be sort of one end of the continuum and the other? Is it hard to get law firms involved? Are they all lining up on sort of one side or the other? And for many, many, many years, decades, um, gun issues were sort of in that semi offhand zone where, where people were, eh, you know, I don't know. Right. And, and that that's changed. So it's also interesting to see how issues evolve and our thinking on things evolve. And, and none of this is is uh, locked in stone. It's it's all incredibly fluid in, in the short term and the long term. So I think that's right. I mean, and, I, and it reminds me of when and this is back in the in the days where Bush was president and people started, lawyers started representing 
people from Guantanamo who were held in Guantanamo. And I remember there was this whole, all this stuff in the media. And there were, there was these big criticisms of these lawyers who were doing this work. And all of these law firms stood up and so many important and well-respected people stood up to kind of raise their hand for, you know, criminal justice and social justice and say how important this work was and really be open about that. And I think, you know, those are the moments that you want to see. And I, and, and I really appreciate that about O'Malvaney, that there might be work that we can't do for X, Y, and Z reasons, but I honestly can't think of work we don't do because it just seems too controversial, quote unquote. I mean, it's, they're, you know, we're lawyers and we obviously represent people on lots of different issues, but the firm is not afraid to be associated, for example, with something like that, you know, just as something that its lawyers are doing. Um, or reproductive rights, or other things that might seem, you know, like touchy subjects. I guess in the in in a more general sense, I think it's really nice to be somewhere where you know people can do that work on on whatever wherever you are in the political spectrum. So, Jerry, you've mentioned David Lash. We've talked about Jane Fleming. In addition to those folks, could you share a pro bono or access to justice role model? I would definitely put Jane up there for sure, and just. I think that I think that people who are unafraid <laughs> are unafraid to just put themselves out there and the way that Jane just got on that plane and just she just goes places and she figures it out as she goes and that just seems terrifying to me but I love that that to me is a role model to not be afraid and not shy away from those things that just seem too overwhelming or too daunting and just to do it and get your hands dirty and see what happens and don't be afraid to fail. You might fail, but you can't fear that failure. So I think those types of people are very, they're just pioneers to me. Um, and I can think of some others. I mean, I know, I mean, look, I would say even the work, law firms couldn't do any of the work that we do and pro bono wouldn't really exist if it wasn't for all the legal services lawyers who are doing what they do. So like those people, hands down, are all role models because they're doing it for much less pay. They're completely dedicated to it. They are doing it for all the right reasons. And there are all these brilliant people, thank goodness, who go into that, into those areas. And I'm so grateful for them. So they're kind of the everyday role models that, that can't be diminished at all because, and they really do it for little to no fanfare, most of them, um, where, you know, they'll kind of honor these law firm lawyers doing X, Y, and Z. And I always think, oh my gosh, I mean, you're doing this stuff every day and you've got to, you know, and not that those law firm lawyers don't deserve to be honored, but the people who really deserve it the most almost never get honored because that's just what they do every day. And it's just expected that they do it. But that was a very conscious choice that they made to do it. So I see those people very much um, as role models. And, you know, and there are others like Jane. I mean, I think I was listening recently to a presentation by Robin Steinberg from Bronx Defenders, who's a, who's a total pioneer in the area of indigent defense. She's really, you know, dedicated her life to helping those in the most need. And she created the Bronx Defenders. And there, I mean, that whole program or that whole organization really developed holistic defense. 
This was like client-centered model, a public defense using all these interdisciplinary teams and areas. And it's not just someone has a criminal problem. They also have this immigration issue. They also have this housing issue. They also have this family law issue. Looking at people holistically and not saying like, we're here for this one issue for them. We are here for this human being. And here are all of the issues that, you know, touch on criminal justice that people don't think about because this person has all these other issues going on in their life. Um, and now, so she did this presentation because she just started this new project in, in Tulsa, Oklahoma, which is so insane because she's a complete New York person, but the project is called Still She Rises. And she, I don't even remember how she exactly found out about, I think she was going around the country and just looking at what was happening in criminal justice in different areas of the country and discovered that women are the fastest growing prison population in the United States which is very interesting, and that this part of Oklahoma was this leading trend where women were incarcerated at twice the national rate as, as other places. And so she just, you know, same kind of thing as Jane. Like these, these women just get on planes, they go somewhere, they, you know, put, <laughs> put down roots and start, she created this project and she has lawyers there now who are working on it. She got funding for it. And they are bringing this holistic defense model to Tulsa, Oklahoma. And that to me is, amazing, so inspiring. And it's people like that, that I thank, thank goodness these people exist. They absolutely are are role models to me. Well, I am fired up. That was an amazing and inspiring answer. Jerry, thank you so much for talking with me today. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Rena. I've absolutely loved it. I, I love talking to you anytime, but this has been really great. And it's my favorite topic to talk about. So thank you so much for asking me to do it. Thank you so much to Jerry for joining us today. To learn more about us, our work, and that PBI annual conference, which will take place on March 8th through 10th in Washington, D.C., please visit our website, probonoinst.org. You'll find quick links to agendas, registration, and sponsorship opportunities. As always, we're grateful for your generous support, which makes our work possible. We'd love to hear from you. Send your comments, feedback, and suggestions to probono at probonoinst.org. New and archived episodes of the podcast can be found on iTunes and YouTube. Be sure to subscribe if you haven't already, and please take a moment to leave an iTunes review. We'd appreciate the feedback, and it would help make it easier for other listeners to find the show. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time on the Pro Bono Happy Hour. 